Welcome back to another episode of Capitalize Your Fridays. This is Michael Williams, your host. I'm with Altius Financial, and this is a financial planning podcast. We call it Financial Planning Investment Advice and Capitalize Your Fridays. The name for that is just Taylor and I came up with this a number of months ago, years ago. We wanted people to go into the weekend actually planning. You know, planning to enjoy the weekend, capitalize on the weekend, capitalize on your Fridays. That's the theme. But uh, Taylor's out for this week. Uh, She's traveling, and I have a special guest in studio here with me, uh, Kim Crea, who I've known for a number of years. Say hello, Kim. Hello there. Uh, We're going to talk about all things mortgages, interest rates, lending, current environment, real estate. I really appreciate you being here, Kim. Uh, You know, you and I have known each other for a number of years. We met. Our daughters played competitive club volleyball together, and, and then... I had a need for a mortgage at one point in time, and you were very helpful. And since that time, you've actually helped a lot of our clients. This is not necessarily an endorsement, but we love Kim, and she's a wealth of knowledge about this industry. So we're going to have a good conversation about those kinds of things today. So we were just talking about disclaimers and disclosures, and so this might be a good time to insert our own disclaimer. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of investment advice or financial planning. No client advisor relationship is formed by our broadcasting this information or your listening to it. The use of this information or any materials linked to in this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not meant as a substitute for professional financial advice. If you're needing specific advice for your situation, please reach out to your certified financial planner, or if you're interested in learning more about our firm, our people, or our philosophy, please reach out to us at our website, altiusfinancial.com, or you can reach us directly by email at michael at altiusfinancial.com or taylor at altiusfinancial.com. All right. So Kim, like I said before our little uh, disclosure, I have known you for a number of years, but uh, tell tell our audience about your background. How did Are you from Colorado? How did you get in the mortgage industry? Tell us a little bit about your pre- professional background. All right. So first off, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Love talking about mortgages and reconnecting. Uh, like you said, we have known each other for a long time. So I'm not originally from Colorado. I was born in California, but my parents moved us here when I was pretty young. So I grew up here and I spent about 15 years growing up, if you will, in corporate America. And my husband and I had three little girls and I was in a sales job traveling all over the country and realized that that was just not a good plan to be on airplanes all the time. And my husband driving all over God's green earth with three daughters who ended up in all sorts of sporting activities, of course. So it was time to find something else. And as luck would have it, the girls were in uh, gymnastics, also known as tumbling when they were little, and met another mom who was in the lending business and recruited me in. So that was 20 years ago. Wow. And I haven't looked back. It's been a good ride for you. It's been a great ride. I love lending. I love helping people get into homes. I love helping people save money. Um, and the whole, like you said, the financial planning side of it, I really love being a piece to that, you know, and helping families. Yeah. And you're good at it too. Um, as I said, you've helped a lot of our clients over the years. So how are the, how is your family doing? I mean, I, I always forget that you've got the three girls, like, just like I do. How's everybody doing? They're doing awesome. Um, unfortunately for us, uh, all three of them live on the West coast somewhere, uh, Portland, Eugene, Oregon, and San Diego, but they're all great places to visit. So Absolutely. You know, that's, that's been a lot of fun. 
Yeah, my youngest is in California now at school, and uh, I don't know if you know this, but my middle daughter is uh, just about planning to move to New Zealand, so I'm not not too excited about that. Well, Hannah's headed to New Zealand next month. Really? Yes, that's our oldest. Um, She uh, works in the wine industry and will be working their fall harvest February, March, and April. Wow. So she'll be in New Zealand. Maybe wow. Maybe connect. she can connect because uh, she's moving down there next month herself. That's funny. So um, you got into the mortgage industry, never looked back. Um, what's been the biggest thing that you've found as a challenge over the last 20 years in this industry? Oh, the biggest challenge. Great question. I think the biggest challenge really on a day-to-day basis is working with people to get them to understand that this is a large financial decision and there's more to it than what's your rate today. There's so many loan options. There's so many down payment options that people really need to stop and listen and think and make sure they find a good advisor that will walk through all those options. There you with go. Them. I like that. That's a that's a good plug for our industry. <laughs> yep, I love being a mortgage advisor. I love working with financial planners. When people say they're going to talk to their financial planner and go meet with them and talk about their mortgage, I say, if you want me to be on the phone with you, I'm. I would be happy to be because we need to work as a team Absolutely. to help you choose the right solution for your situation. So I feel like I know what you do as having worked with you as a client and both uh, working on multiple client cases. But let's step back for a minute. What does a mortgage lender do? What do you, what is your role? What and how do people think about okay, when I go to someone like you Kim, what am I what am I uh, wanting from and what can I expect in terms of the advice that I get? Great question. Um and so that goes back a little bit to the You know, it's not just what's the rate today. I see myself as an advisor. So let me understand what your goals are. You know, what are you looking for in a property? How long do you think you'll keep it? I want to understand their entire situation so that I can then start pulling together various options for them and present different options to make sure that we get them in the right loan for their situation. Yeah. So one of the things that's interesting about someone who's been in the business for for a while, like you have, is you've seen the cycles. And here we are, a uh, brand new year. We've seen the, the interest rates really kind of take off over the last six months to a year, you know, fighting inflation, the Federal Reserve, all that kind of thing. But you've seen both the up and the down cycles. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, it seems like that there's there are people who are truly professional in both the lending business and a realtor business, people who are uh, helping um, broker transactions, either residential or commercial. And then there are people who, you know, if interest rates are low or the, the market is hot, they're in that business. But then when things slow down, all of a sudden they're not in that business. So it's a cyclical kind of thing, right? Absolutely. Yeah. My joke is it's Darwinism at its best. There's only the strong will survive. And to your point, the professionals... You know, I am in it, you know, all in 110%, you know, whether I have a lot going on or not, I am at my desk every day ready to answer questions or or what have you. And same with realtors. So you've got the true professionals that will survive both the, the, you know, upside and downside and the different cycles. So, yeah. So it's always in both of our businesses, it's hard to, and and again, you know, the audience just heard our disclaimer. We're going to play one of yours just to make sure people realize we're not 
given any specific advice and we're complying with all the laws. But in both of our industries, it's hard to predict the future, but sometimes clients expect us to. I mean, I, I as a client, you know, I ask you, well, well Kim, what are rates going to do? What If I'm in the market for a mortgage or a piece of real estate or something like that, I want to pick your brain. But how should someone think about that piece of it? Uh, and how, I mean, how well did you feel like uh, you guys, both you and your firm, saw this inflationary rise the, and, and consequent uh, reaction by the Federal Reserve to re- really go after inflation with the increase in interest rates. How, how will you guys see that coming and what did you do in terms of the preparation? So I, I think much like I'm guessing that you do, we're watching a lot of technical aspects of the market and you know what's happening with the bonds and the treasuries and just you know lots of various indicators and and those technicals move around to see you know where we think things are headed and you know as the fed kept saying inflation was transitory we all knew it wasn't nobody and was buying <laughs> we all knew that that was not the case so we we saw it coming and unfortunately the fed seems to have either you know um, high gear or zero. You know, it's either stomp on the gas real hard or, you know, hit the brake instead of, you know, trying to to tread somewhere in between. So, you know, unfortunately, it created, you know, quite a pendulum swing over the summer and fall. And, you know, the good news is, is those uh, rate hikes, which affect the Fed funds rate and prime rate, they're not setting mortgage interest rates. That is a big misunderstanding in the marketplace. Um, but those changes have been helping us with inflation. And now we're starting to see mortgage rates come down. We've seen about a 1% reduction in the last couple of months. So um, as we watch inflation and a lot of other indicators, we think that we're heading down that path. You know, it's interesting and good that you reminded the audience that the Federal Reserve can't or doesn't uh, set mortgage interest rates or any or long bonds or anything like that. I sometimes, well, I'm, I'm a big attacker of the Federal Reserve as a concept in the first place. I don't know if you have any opinions about them structurally or the whole philosophy of central banking, but but I, I do. And a lot of times I'm attacking them in 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 a shortcut way, I sometimes uh, talk about interest rates more than I should or attribute more to what the Federal Reserve is doing. But they have a lot of power, right? And and, and setting those short-term interest rates or the, the overnight lending rates, that does make a big difference. You know, the, the Fed funds rate ripples through our economy. And I agree with you that they, they typically are either, uh, you know, stepping on the gas or on the brakes pretty hard. I guess it's easy for me to sit here and, and, and criticize, right? I mean, it's pretty tough. <laughs> Pretty tough, you know. You got a you know, twenty twenty-five trillion dollar economy is tough to steer. Um, I don't think they should be steering it. But so when you guys are are looking at interest rates, do you make preparations in terms of the market itself and say, okay, well, we're going to maybe have a slowdown, or or we're going to have we better hire more people because you know rates are going down, and we're going to have more people looking for loans. Uh, how do you guys deal with that kind of cyclicality? Well, of course, the past couple of years have just been so extreme with, you know, who saw um, the pandemic coming and the extreme influx of loans, you know, nobody. So nobody was staffed up for that. Um, Everyone staffed up for it in very short order. And now, of course, we've got, you know, such a huge downturn that um, every mortgage company, you know, in the country has had to lay off a lot of people. So there's a lot of good resources sitting on the sidelines right now. So as volume starts to pick back up, 
um, you know, we'll be able to bring people back in the Is door. there always a bit of a lag that way for you guys where you have to say, okay, now, boy, things have changed, so we have to react that way. You know, like if you're staffing up, do you all of a sudden have to, to have a big higher workload just on you yourself? I know technology has helped over the years, but does that make a difference? It can. I mean, you know, I never want my clients to feel that we're understaffed. So if that means I'm going to work extra hours to make sure they don't feel it because that's happened in the background, that's what we're going to do as professionals. So there can be a bit of a lag, but, um, you know, I know our company in particular has put in a lot of efforts to keep people, as many people on staff as possible, so that as things do ramp up, we'll be sufficiently staffed. So what what's the favorite what's your favorite part of your your business and what you do i get a lot of joy out of helping uh people get into a home especially first time home buyers and maybe the tougher ones are feel even better you know sometimes people come in and their credit isn't sufficient to buy a house so i get them on a plan to build their credit get it into a place where now they can buy meanwhile they've been saving up money um, so that they can, you know, maybe just cover closing costs and we, we use down payment assistance, whatever it may be to see them get into a house. Just like I said, it brings me a lot of joy. You know, you're talking about, uh, the first time home buyer and how that is enjoyable, but I've seen you work on bigger cases, bigger loans. Tell the audience a little bit about your market. I know from personal experience, you, you'll uh, do loans on rental properties. I don't know how much I don't know how much you'll do outside of rental or real estate. I mean, do you do business loans? I know you, like I said, you obviously you're, you're working with first-time home buyers at times, but you, I've seen you do bigger loans than that. Tell us more about your market. So um, I do residential lending in Colorado. So I'm just licensed in Colorado at the moment. Uh, maybe we'll expand out to California, but um, so it's just residential lending. So primary homes, second homes, investment properties would be, you know, the gamut and then all the various loan options under the underneath that. So if somebody wants to buy a second home in New Mexico, I'm just throwing that out there. Right. Um, and they come to you or I send them to you, what do they do? Do you have, does the firm itself have resources down there? Do you have connections down in, in other states? How do they go about trying to get a loan? They're a resident here in, in Colorado, but they need a loan on a property in, uh, I don't know, Taos or something. Uh, what, are the, what, what happens then? So Draper and Kramer Mortgage is licensed in all 50 states. So I would find a colleague of mine that is licensed in New Mexico and, you know, help get the loan done with my colleague in New Mexico. So tell the audience, if they were, if they were using your services and, in the, and they're in the market for a loan, what is their experience like? What, from, from the very, let's say I referred them to you or they found out about you from our podcast here. What would their experience be like? What, what would be the, the first steps and then, and then what would happen? So the process is that I like to start out with just an initial conversation, sort of interview style to understand goals, timelines, and just get a really good idea of how um, the client wants to work. Do you want to meet in person? Do you want to do everything over the phone or Zoom or whatever it may be? I'm going to accommodate, you know, what the client needs and, and is looking for to feel confident with borrowing this kind of money and having a good advisor to help them do that. So starting out that way. 
So you don't have a preference in terms of those modes? Would you rather meet with them in person or Zoom's okay and over the phone or technology? What, whichever the client is most comfortable with is, is where I'll meet them. Cool. So, um, you know, I'm comfortable with whichever. Um, if we meet in person and I'm doing a loan application, you get to sit there and watch me type in the application. But if that's what you want, then by all means, that's what we'll do. So, you know, have that initial conversation and setting up the, the time and the meeting to, you know, go through the app. The application itself is really just name, address, date of birth, social, employment, information, income, assets. That's really about it. So, you know, that's not, I feel like people get really caught up in this application piece that feels really overwhelming, but it's not that piece to me that's overwhelming. It's the, okay, um, how much do I want to borrow? How much can I borrow? How much am I comfortable with spending every month and working that into your budget? And, you know, if I'm working with someone six months ahead of time, let's say, I will tell them, start putting that money away in an account every month so it feels to you like you're already making that mortgage payment. And that gets you on the path of already making that payment. How often is that the case though? I mean, there are people that planful about when they're going to be needing a mortgage. I mean, do you, and what's your preference? Is it, you know, six months out or is it, do you want to, I mean, you're like, ah, that's, that's a little too far out here. Go do some homework and start saving that way. I mean, what, what is the right time frame for someone to be thinking about and planning and then contacting you for a mortgage? I say it's never too early to chat because some of the numbers are can be surprising. We also have the ability to run a soft poll on credit, which means I get two out of the three bureaus and I don't ding your scores. Well, that can be very enlightening because sometimes there are medical collections or various items that show up that are very surprising. And that gives us a head start on how do we fix this and let's get you on the right path. And then we can have all those other conversations about numbers and planning. So I think it's never too early to start. If you call today and you're already under contract and you're closing in three weeks, well, let's go. Let's get after. We can get it done. <laughs> so um, that reminded me the the whole issue of credit scores. We did a, a podcast episode a while back on credit scores and neither Taylor or I are experts on on repairing credit or, or, or even how the credit scores work. I mean, we did some research and we know enough about it to talk you know, somewhat intelligently, but you're a lot more of an expert. Talk about that. Talk about how credit scores affect someone's ability to borrow, maybe the ranges of you know, numbers and so forth when they're borrowing amounts. And, and, and uh, you, know, you mentioned a, a, a soft pull. How many different levels of pulling credit are there? And is that a term the mortgage industry uses or is it, you know, FICO itself who uses that terminology? Talk, talk about credit scores. Then. Okay. So, um, I believe that, uh, insurance companies also use a soft pull. So it's not, um, just the mortgage world, but it is unique to certain mortgage companies. Not, not everybody has the ability to do that. Um, so I do really enjoy the ability to be able to get a peek at credit without dinging your scores because there's just the soft pull and then the hard pull, the hard inquiry that is where a lot of people get really uptight about, like, don't do that yet. Um, I don't want you dinging my scores, which I don't think it's a significant amount. I've heard five to eight points for the mortgage. It's hard to know because I don't know what it is before I pull it. So is that is that dependent upon each unique case? Because it might be, I mean, it might ding someone more or less depend upon the other 
factors in the, the situation? The profile, yes, uh, I think it is. You know, if you've had a lot of inquiries for various things, it, I think it's going to ding you a little bit more. Um, however, the system is set up so that you can shop mortgages, meaning you can have multiple lenders pull your credit within 30 days and you just get dinged the first time. And once you go outside of 30 days, you will get dinged again. But at least within that time frame, if you have multiple lenders pull your credit, you only get dinged that one time. So what if you have multiple lenders pulling a soft credit? Does that start to add up to a ding? Nope. Nope. You can have multiple lenders do the soft pull. The other thing that I highly, highly recommend is a practice that has gotten very popular and, and in my opinion, out of control. The bureaus are allowed to sell your data to other lenders. So if I pull your credit and you have not done what I recommend, which is opt out, the bureaus will sell your data and you will be attacked for the next several <laughs> months by other lenders. Now you're a target. Now you're a target. So you there is an opt out, which is like a do not call, putting yourself on your credit on the do not call list. Now, would some people say, okay, well, Kim, you're just telling me that because you don't want you don't want to compete in the marketplace. You don't want other other lenders haven't been able to to you know give me a better rate than you. Do, do, do sometimes people respond that way? No, because they're um, two separate things. I'm saying put yourself on the um, opt out simply so the bureaus don't sell your data. That has nothing to do with you going to another lender and comparing okay, that's, notes. That's good. That's good clarification. So what else about credit scores would you say to borrowers and, and people thinking about uh, borrowing money for a home? So you asked about like different tiers um, and how that affects your pricing. On a conventional loan, the top tier for interest rate pricing is 740. So we pull all three bureaus, we throw out the low and the high scores and use the middle score. If there's two borrowers, now we have two middle scores, we use the lower of the two middle scores. If that middle score is 745, you will get the best interest rate pricing out there. Um, if you put less than 20% down and you have mortgage insurance, um, the top tier for mortgage insurance pricing is 760. Below that, every 20 point increment is a different pricing tier. Post recording this episode, Kim informed the Altius team that Fannie and Freddie are implementing changes, so starting in March or April, the top tier for interest rate pricing will now be a credit score of 780 instead of the previous 740 mentioned. So once you get below a 680, you know, down into, you know, 660 range, you're probably then looking at maybe going to an FHA loan from conventional because you're not going to be affected by interest rate pricing attached to that credit score like you would be on a conventional loan. So help us out. Uh, tell us more about what that means. When, when, when you say conventional loan or FHA or how many different categories are there that someone might be doing in terms of that, that loan, um, explain what you mean by those terms. Okay, so What's a conventional loan. A conventional loan are those that are governed by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So when you hear the you know the guidelines and the the governing body of Fannie Freddie, that's who's setting the guidelines. Now sometimes banks will have additional guidelines on top of Fannie Freddie, which we call overlays. Um, but those would be if your loan is under the conforming loan limit then that is going to be what I will call the premier loan. 
And that's the one I'm going to look for first. If you're looking for a loan amount over that conforming loan limit, depending on what county you're in, then you're looking at a jumbo loan, different guidelines. And those, those guidelines are governed by the individual banks and investors. So you've got the jumbo, you've got the conforming, and then you've got FHA, which is governed by HUD. So FHA initially started out uh, in the 60s as a first-time homebuyer program. It is no longer a first-time homebuyer program, but the minimum down payment there is 3.5% accordingly because it was designed for that type of buyer. Mm -hmm. And it allows for lower credit scores and higher debt-to-income ratio. So you must be thinking, well, what's the downside? The downside is that an FHA loan has an upfront fee that gets rolled into your loan. Always. Is that always? Always. 1.75% of your loan amount is added to the loan. And then a standard mortgage insurance premium across the board. So who's getting that one point? Are you getting it? Is FHA? Is Draper taking it? Is everybody HUD. Yes. (laughs) HUD is holding on to that. So they're holding on to those reserves for future defaults. Is it really like that? I mean, are they they using that as sort of an insurance premium? And and I mean, if you have an an FHA loan that's through HUD uh, and you're paying that 1.75%, are you also going to be paying the mortgage insurance yes. MPI as well? Yes. So you have both the upfront fee and the monthly fee. Oh. So it pays to make sure you're uh, you're a good credit risk to That's repair right. that credit. It score, sure does score and make sure that you're uh, you're staying on top of it. Um, so what percentage of the time are you dealing with that kind of a loan, FHA loan? Just generally, I'm curious. Oh, probably twenty five percent of the time for myself, and then the other loan that I haven't talked about is a VA loan. Mm-hmm which of course we love to do. It's a great benefit for veterans. They can borrow 100%, no limit. There might be an upfront fee if they're not exempt from it. If they're rated disabled, they'll be exempt from it. Um, Otherwise, there's an upfront fee that gets rolled into it. But generally speaking, they get uh, lower rates and no mortgage insurance on 100% financing. And does that mean they need to, they, one of the, let's say it's a couple who's buying a home, uh, one of them needs to be a veteran? Right. They need to have VA eligibility. What if I'm a, a, a child of a veteran? Do I qualify then? Probably not. <laughs> there may be some very specific instances, but I'm going to say no. Yeah. So you, you mentioned that 745 credit score. That's where you can qualify for the top tier. Is that pretty standard or is that a moving target sometimes within the county or the company or the bank or the time period, the market cycle? No, that that is a standard across the board, 740, top tier, 760 for mortgage insurance across the mortgage insurance companies because there are several. Um, And then every, again, every 20 point increment below that is a different um, pricing adjustment. And those are set by Fannie and Freddie. Okay. That's good stuff. It's complicated, though. I mean, that there's a lot of details to it. That makes some uh, moving parts in terms of trying to get someone the best program. What else do you look for in terms of helping someone make the best decision with regard to a new loan? Obviously, it's their their current financial condition and and the the um, home that they're buying and their credit score. What else is is part of that process in terms of shaping the loan itself? So as we're working on structuring the loan, we're looking at things, let's say it's a primary residence and 
um, we've been running numbers for you. You've been out shopping. You want to put 20% down. You find a great place, but it needs some work. And you're not going to have quite enough cash in hand for that. So now I'm going to run numbers for you to say, well, what if you put 15% down instead of 20? Keep that cash in pocket. Is that enough to do your upgrades? And, you know, now let's look what the cost of that mortgage insurance is. And one thing that is very counterintuitive is that when there is mortgage insurance, investors give us better interest rates on the loan. So again, very counterintuitive that I'm going to put less than 20% down. So you'd think higher risk, but now I'm going to get a better interest rate. And that's because the investor knows it's, it's, they've got more protection. They've got the insurance policy. Yeah. That mortgage insurance is an insurance policy for the investor against default. Mm -hmm. So therefore, generally you'll get about an eighth of a point better interest rate. So you get a lower rate and then your mortgage insurance if you have a high credit score and you're talking 15% down, it's going to be very inexpensive. So there are times when you would say to someone, actually put less down, go ahead and pay the mortgage insurance because we're going to get you a better overall package. Correct. Huh. Yeah, that's fascinating. So you've basically just financed your home improvements by putting 15% down. You're, you're financing it into that loan. How difficult is it to get rid of that mortgage insurance once it's on there? Is it just once you read a certain loan to, to value number? It will automatically drop off when your loan hits 78% loan to value, which typically takes longer than just markets have gotten better, you've built equity, you've done home improvements, now it's worth more. So if it makes sense, there's a couple of options. I always tell people call the the uh, servicer, whoever's servicing your loan at that time, and see what they'll require. Can you do an appraisal, keep your current loan, do an appraisal, but get rid of mortgage insurance? If not, um, if rates currently make sense, can we refinance you into a loan without mortgage insurance? But it usually requires one of those two things to, to get it removed. Or just over time, once you hit 78% on a natural amortization schedule, it will drop off. So with the original value. Correct. So they're not they're not looking at market changes. They're just saying, okay, you've been paying on this, so now you've got right. enough equity in it based on the original loan. Right. What happens if the it's been an extreme market where the value of the home or homes generally are dropping precipitously, but you have been, you know, making your payments and now you, you have over uh over seventy eight percent or over the, the I guess it'd be the twenty eight percent. Right. Twenty percent twenty eight percent equity yeah, now. Twenty two percent. Yeah, 22%. I got to do the math right. 22% equity now in it based on the original purchase price, but obviously the market's down and the value of the home isn't what it really is in terms of real terms. Will they still remove that mortgage insurance? Yeah, because when you sign your note, you're agreeing to those terms that yeah. on based on this amortization schedule, it will automatically drop off after so many payments. And there's not a human being that's analyzing these, which is why you can't get rid of it ahead of time unless you proactively pursue that. So this is good. I'm learning some stuff here. Um, <laughs> you know, you're using all these terms um, that I'm familiar with, but uh, I'm being reminded about um, the, the one thing I wanted to ask you about, it, you mentioned the servicing um, firm now. That seems to be one of those things where people, I have had a bad taste in my mouth before where, where okay, I borrowed money from this 
person and bank. And then all of a sudden I'm getting, you know, this loan gets sold multiple times in a fairly short time period. Tell me more about that, that whole issue of, okay, this is the originating firm, but once the, the home closes, once the loan closes, then all of a sudden it's somebody else who I'm dealing with. Right. Yeah. And you're not the only one with a bad taste in your mouth. I know that is a huge issue out there. And the reason for that is um, loan servicing is a really difficult business model. There's uh, The profit margin is minuscule. So therefore, the business model is service as many loans as you can with as few a bodies as you can, you know, to try and eke out some profit there, right? Well, right there, you've got bad customer service model. So therein lies the issue for everybody and, and their concerns. So and, what would change that? What would make it uh, a different model so that, that uh, a good... Um, lender could keep the loans they originate, or, or at least a, you know, the, a company who's servicing them can make a reasonable profit. Well, what would change the dynamics of that? Well, it'd have to be higher rates, so there's more service premiums, and you know that it, the whole back end of and and it doesn't matter who's originating the loan, whether it's a bank or correspondent lender or broker, it doesn't matter. On the back end, servicing premiums is what it's all about. So and it's a commoditization, and, it, and, and yep. what you're saying is that there needs to be. A pro, someone who's who's giving good advice on the front end, like you are. But then, once it comes down to collecting the check and and making sure you're paying your loan, it's it's a pretty basic business. And then you know it's competitive enough to to make it commoditized, and and that's where it gets tough. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Huh. So, uh, what are rates like right now? So we're looking at the low sixes these days for a 30-year fixed, no discount cost to buy it down. So what we call in our world par pricing. So you're not paying extra to buy down the rate, um, which, you know, is a nice reprieve from the um, sevens that we were looking at late October, early November. So, but it wasn't that long. I mean, I, is, my, is it my memory? But it was it maybe less than two or three years ago that people were in the twos or threes, right? Well, in 2020, yes. Um, late 2020, early 21, we were in the high twos, low threes. Now, was that mainly pandemic related or was that just uh, because the, the Federal Reserve had, had been on that path anyway to sort of a negative real interest rates in the first place? I will say I think it's 100% pandemic related. March of 2020 is when treasuries hit their all-time low, and that was when the Fed had really stepped in. There was no liquidity in the market prior to the Fed stepping in, and boy, did they step in with a hammer, right? <laughs> they, they brought Back it. Back to your point about the gas or the brakes. That's right. They, they swung the pendulum from a one extreme to the other within a, a day or two because there was absolutely no liquidity in the market. Like all the investors disappeared. For a couple of days, people didn't have any jumbo loans. Yeah. Like I couldn't even quote you a jumbo loan rate because the investors had gotten on the sidelines. You know, there was the CARE Act that was passed and there were implications within that to Fannie and Freddie and to the servicing side that weren't 100% understood. And therefore, investors were um, reluctant to fund any loans. Well, that's one of the, that, the, this is a good chance for me to make an editorial comment anyway. You know, that's one of those things where, you know, investors are looking for stability or predictability. Can I 
you know, can I operate at a profit in this environment? And then, you know, when you have, uh, whether it's new uh, housing rules or whatever, you know, the government is doing, whenever they, they change the rules of the game, so to speak, then people have a difficult time predicting, okay, how's this going to impact my business? What's going to happen right. then? How, how are the dominoes going to fall? So that does change things. That does, I think, oftentimes distort the market. And, and you know, I think that's, that's bad. We need more, uh, less intervention by our government in the markets and just having people be able to make deals with each other. Enough of that, though. I want to get back to <laughs> your expertise. There were good intentions, but there's always unintended consequences, that's right? right? <laughs> that's right. So interest rates have come back down a little bit. Um, do you have a crystal ball? Uh, do you ever make predictions? Uh, you know, what does it look like? Obviously, from our standpoint, uh, in the financial planning investment side, um, I think there's a good chance that, that we'll see some real recessionary pressure this year. I don't know if on your side you're seeing the same thing, but that that would make you think that the Fed will back off some, right? Yep, I, I agree. There's a lot of indicators that are pointing towards recession. So we're thinking that the next Fed increase, February 1st, will be 50 basis points instead of 75. So hopefully they're getting it that um, inflation is coming down, so they're going to back off a little bit. And as that continues then we should, you know, hopefully see rates continue to come down. You know, one thing that another thing that can be very counterintuitive is um, housing generally does really well in a recession. So as there's a lot of recessionary talk on in the media, people get very scared about buying homes or, you know, um, you know, getting doing any sort of lending or financial uh, uh, buying. And, you know, like I said, housing generally does very well during a recession. So it's very counterintuitive. But it, you know, even if you do a 30-year fixed mortgage, you can refinance out of that anytime you want. So after six months, if rates have come down, you can get out of that. So we call it um, date the mortgage, marry the house. (laughs) I like that phrase. So what would make you more uh, concerned about actual housing prices? Um, and, the, uh, go ahead. At the moment, I'm not concerned about housing prices. I've, the, the acceleration of values has slowed down. Thank goodness. We needed to stabilize, right? Yeah. We were in a crazy market of acceleration. So that is coming down um, and, and it's just decelerating. It's not that values are dropping significantly. Um, the acceleration is just slowing down. So, what's been the biggest pocket of softness? Let's say in uh, metro areas generally, or maybe the Denver metro area, since that's where we're at. Have there been any price points or areas of the city, uh, the metro area, that have been softer than others, or, or is that pretty standard? You know, whatever the cycle is, then this neighborhood doesn't do as well, or this one does a lot better anyway. I think there's always that, but what I noticed. Um, last fall, uh, maybe summer, is that the suburbs were getting hit first, meaning values were starting to come down. Maybe a contingent offer would be accepted. Um, Maybe an FHA offer would be accepted where it wasn't six months prior. Um, So that was in the suburbs, whereas um, in the true Denver metro area, those offers wouldn't have been accepted. There were still multiple offer situations outbidding each other. 
So we had that happening in town versus, you know, a, a softening. Do you usually see the, the city centers themselves, the closer to the downtown areas, be stronger for longer? and Or is that just dependent? I mean, one of the things that to me was interesting this last time around, because of the, the COVID pandemic, it seemed like, now I, I may be wrong, but it seemed like that the rules didn't necessarily apply, that people were saying, let me get the heck out of Dodge. Right. Know, let me get out of the city center. Right. So prior to the pandemic, people were buying more places in city center. And so that was the trend. And then, like to your point, with the pandemic, everyone wanted space. Yeah. Everyone's working from home. They're all on top of each other in their smaller places downtown, but we can't go anywhere. So absolutely... People started moving out. And then just like I said, this last summer, I started noticing that the suburbs were, you know, taking a hit. The, are you finding that the that whole issue with regard to space and the kind of space people want the uh, now maybe this is more of a question for your realtor uh, friends and, and my realtor friends about the market. But I think it's worthwhile discussing. Um, are you finding that whole issue of well, there's a lot more people still working from home and that's just a permanent trend or is that really beginning to reverse itself? Do you have an opinion on that? It seems to me like the work from home uh, scenario will continue. A lot of people will have been and are going back to the office, but maybe Mm part-time. So COVID definitely changed that world, I think forever. You know, there's a lot of positive to being in the office. So a lot of companies, you know, either require or promote at least being in a few days a week. But I think some work from home will will continue. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, my, my sense is that it's a permanent change, but we're still kind of feeling our way about how that really, what, what that mixture, maybe there's a rebound effect right now with lots of you know, corporations saying, oh, well, wait on, we got to have a little bit more control over people or we got to know what's right. going on more. Right, and it depends on the space. industry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Huh. Any other predictions about the the markets, either the interest rate market, the inflation market, or housing prices that you'd like to? <laughs> and again, we're not going to hold you into this. This is uh, this is all just uh, sort of education uh, podcast talking. We're not making any recommendations. Any uh, you know, every situation is unique, and you should talk to Kim or myself if you have uh, financial planning questions or, or lending needs. Um, or, 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 you know, anyone out there, uh, we're just talking, so I'm not going to hold you any, any predictions, but I'm wondering if you have any more, any more thoughts about the future. Uh, you know, obviously no one has a, a great crystal ball, but do you have any more thoughts about you know, how this year, 2023 will shake out? I am very, um, optimistic about this year. So I, uh, I'm very glad that, values have stabilized in my mind. And, you know, that that's debatable, I guess. But at least we've seen the extreme values come down. And we're seeing more of a, you know, standard or um, good balance of value increases. So that puts us in a much better place with um, buying homes and not feeling like you're, you know, totally overbuying. Um, or overpaying interest rates, I think they're still going to trickle down a little bit. But, you know, if I'm right about that, you can always refinance later. You know, again, marry the house, date the mortgage. It may not be perfect today, but the national average of holding on to a 30-year fixed rate mortgage is five to seven years. 
So, you know. Yeah, it's a mobile society. We don't we don't necessarily stay in a thirty year a thirty year home any any longer. Or certainly don't keep the same uh, loan on it. Um, so people have flexibility. I wanted to ask you about appraisals. Is there anything that that you've seen uh, in your time in the business about how appraisals work and how how your clients should think about uh, getting appraisals on a, on a home they're looking to buy? So. I guess most recently, one of the changes uh, that we've had is that Fannie and Freddie are allowing more appraisal waivers, um, which means the loan does not require an appraisal. Really? So then it becomes up to you about whether or not you would like to have one and pay for one to check market value. And all that's really doing is documenting how does your sales price compare with your finishes, square footage, et cetera, to the other properties that have sold um, in the in the area. So yes, they have they've expanded their guidelines. Um, and of course they won't tell us exactly what the guidelines are, but they have expanded them such that if you're putting 20% down on a conventional loan, you have good credit, you have good assets, and there's data in their system to support your value, meaning there's either a recent appraisal, similar recent appraisal on that property or others in the area, then you'll get a waiver on your purchase. Hmm. Does that mean in terms of your own advice, do you tell people, well, yeah, you, there's no reason to get that done if, if you can get a waiver on it in the first place? I don't personally see a reason to pay for it. Um, if you're comfortable, if you're already comfortable making that offer and you're working with a professional realtor that has run comparable sales for you, and you all feel confident that that's a good value, then I don't see a reason to document it further, you know. Does that mean that we're kind of just continually inching down the path of having the taxpayer backstop everything? I mean, where you're saying, you know, the, because the banks are no longer taking as much risk themselves, right? They're, they're not taking that much risk because they've got these federal agencies who are behind them. I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that where you, where we're we're saying, well, okay, there's enough evidence, so we don't need to worry about an official appraisal because ultimately someone else is going to be holding the bag if you don't pay for this loan. I don't know that I see that as a higher risk factor because there's enough pieces to what's required before you get that waiver. You know, we don't see it a lot. Um, probably... I don't know. I'm going to say maybe 15% of the time. So most of the time, a person's still going to need and want to have an, uh, an official right. appraisal done. Right. Are they changing? Uh, are the Is the appraisal industry changing at all? I mean, this may be just more of a theoretical question, but it seems like you know, they kind of lag and go through these cycles as well, is where they really get serious about you know looking hard at the property versus... I mean, I've heard the term drive-by appraisal. You know, they just kind of drive by and say, well, is the place still there? Did right, and down? that's not a function of the appraiser and and whether or not they're looking deeper or not. That was a function of Fannie and Freddie giving us that ability to do that quote-unquote drive-by, which really just says, okay, there's enough comparable sale data in the system. The rest of your, you know, you're putting 50% down, whatever. Um, we really just want pictures to document that the property is still in good standing. Mm -hmm. um, but to the whole appraisal, appraiser world, um, that trend is really difficult. Um, it, they're aging. 
And becoming an appraiser is very difficult. Um, I believe this is a state of Colorado thing, not a national thing, but uh, a bachelor's degree is required. And then a two-year apprenticeship under a licensed appraiser is required. So now you've got to find a licensed appraiser who doesn't mind working with someone for two years. And, you know, they don't have a huge profit margin. So you're asking a lot of someone to, you know, manage uh, an apprentice for a couple of years. So so there's going to be a shortage of people who are qualified really to do that. I, I think so. And, and I think that also plays into the Fannie Freddie, you know, waivers, the waivers a little bit. Yeah. I mean, part of that also I started with COVID and you couldn't go into a home. So there were some temporary changes then. But I think coming out of that, there's been some more permanent while we're on sort of that topic, what about inspections? Do you have any advice for people when they're when they're getting a home inspected? I don't get involved in that piece. Um, that is a piece that the realtor um, sets up with the buyers. Uh, the only thing I would say from my perspective is even if you're buying a brand new home, still get an inspection. A lot of buyers, I feel like, think that since it's brand new, they don't need an inspection. But I still highly recommend. Definitely a mistake there, yeah. Yep. So tell me about, uh, I I had started off asking you about the process with you. I'm curious about the the step where you're getting down to it. You're saying, okay, I know your situation. You've, You've got a good application here. I know what your scores are, and I'm shaping the loan for you. And we're, we are looking now at uh, an interest rate. That whole issue of locking an interest rate, tell us more about that, where someone's trying to say, okay, should I wait and see if they come down? Or <laughs> what does that look like? Well, at that point, you're gambling because we're playing the market. So if you're under contract, um, it's one thing. If you're out shopping, we have uh, at Draper & Kramer the ability to do what we call lock and shop. So when I have all of your loan information and a to-be-determined property address, we can lock a rate and we can decide how long we think is appropriate, 60 days, 90 days, whatever. And so we put in place a a lock while you're out shopping. So in rising interest rate environment, obviously that's brilliant. Um, In the environment we're in today where we think they're going to go down a little bit, maybe not so much, but we also have the ability to put in place a float down option. So if rates do drop, we can float you down to current market. Um, but now you get under contract or you're, or you are under contract. You don't have your rate locked. Now we're going to talk about, well, here's what the market's doing today. Here's the economic reports coming out. I can tell you what's coming in terms of what reports can affect the markets. And now, now we have to decide when we think is the best time to, to pull a trigger. What's the the sort of range of time period? So uh, when someone's looking and then now is under contract, what's a typical time period to close and what is the range there? I mean, what's the fastest you've ever seen someone go under contract and actually uh, close a loan, close the whole deal versus where you've seen maybe nightmare scenarios and stretching (laughs) it out over time? Uh, So industry standard, I'll call it, is 30 days. So 30-day contract, totally standard, normal. 
Um, Do they ever really close that fast? Absolutely. The Based on compliance laws for when we have to send out initial disclosures to when we can close, the shortest time period is 10 days. And there have been loans that have closed in 10 days. You can get them done that fast. You don't, Yeah. If you don't need an appraisal, we've got all the paperwork in, you know, on day one. Absolutely. You know, and we get disclosures out day one. That's that's as fast as you can close based on compliance laws. It's not like pre-2008 when we could close same day. So (laughs) these days, 10 days would be the shortest. Um, That doesn't happen very often. Um, That is maybe somebody's had issues somewhere and they're transferring a a loan file over. But um, I've had a few two-week closings. So you had mentioned before the potential of buying down interest rates. Tell us how that works. Is it worth it to do that? Is it really, again, dependent upon the context? You know, how does someone decide, well, I'm going to put some money into this so I have a longer-term, shorter rate or a lower rate? Um, yeah, it goes back to context. Like you said, every situation is different, and the cost to buy down each eighth of a point changes every single day. And it's different with every profile. So, you know, a lot of times I'll get the question, all right, well, what does 1% of my loan get me? One, one point discount, what does that get me? Well, today's answer is probably going to be different than tomorrow's answer because it's all based on market, current market pricing. So um, right now today, I'm not advising significant buy downs because we think that rates will be coming down. Okay, Kim. So this has been great. I, I really appreciate all the information. I'm, I'm curious about some of the specific programs. You know, you and I were talking beforehand about, you know, buying down rates. And uh, I'm curious about the way someone should think about, you know, should they use, you know, if there's a seller concession, um, should they be buying down their rate? Tell us about some of those programs that are available and how you might use them. Sure. Yeah, that has become a, a big topic as of late, as interest rates popped up and sellers were looking for ways to get buyers in the door, we started looking at permanent rate buy-down versus a 2-1 buy-down versus a price reduction. So the 2-1 buy-down is where a seller prepays for the interest between the note rate and 2% below it for the first year, and the note rate and 1% below that for the second year, So for example, if your note rate is 6%, your payment feels like you're at a 4% rate the first year, 5% rate the second year, and then you go up to 6% the third year, that interest difference is prepaid by the seller at closing. And that sits in an escrow account and is utilized to make up the, the difference each month. Does the seller really have anything to say about that? in terms of the contract? Or are they just saying, okay, I'm willing to help you out here because I want you to buy this house and I know rates have gone up and here, here's X dollars, you can apply it however you want. Right, that's how it works is um, either the buyer puts in an offer saying I would like X dollars or the seller's already offering X dollars in a con- seller concession. So then on the buyer side, we start comparing notes to figure out, all right, what's, what's the best way to spend this money? Now, obviously, it gets into the crystal ball business again, but how do you compare that sort of 2-1? Because you're saying basically 2% off in the first year, 1% off in the second year, and then you're back at what your original interest rate uh, is. But why not consider an arm anyway? How does that compare? 
Well, the ARM pricing has not been very good because of the, the yield inversion. So with that and with Fed funds rates going up, ARM rates have not been very good. Just to clarify for our listeners, an ARM adjustable rate mortgage where you're not getting it fixed and you're hoping rates go down over time. But is, are, any, are there any buyers out there of loans buying ARMs today? The only ARMs I've been doing have been for jumbo loans because those investors are pricing um, off of different indices. And so we get some better ARM pricing on jumbo loans, maybe a physician loan. So different programs like that. So I feel like I've had you for a while. I really appreciate all the time you've put into this uh, um, session for us. What else should should I be asking you? What else do you want to talk about or let people, our listeners know about you know, the whole process of uh, borrowing and the current sort of super environment that we're in right now, what would you what would you want people to be left with? I think the biggest thing is if you are looking at financing, in my opinion, it's your single biggest financial move that has an emotional tie to it. Every other financial move you make, you can have really your business hat on. But when you're talking about your home, there's such an, an emotional tie to it that make sure you set yourself up with a good team of professionals, your financial planner, your lender, your realtor, you know, make sure you have really good trusted advisors and professionals in those roles that will make sure they have your best interest in mind to put you in the best loans and, you know, products situations, whether that be taking money out of your investments or not etc. That's really good advice. I know obviously that's a little self-serving for me to say as well, you know, hire a good advisor. But but your point about, you know, such it's one of the biggest decisions people make and has that incredible emotional attachment. You know, it's not just a business decision. It's where you're going to live most often. Um, right. And, and it's got all kinds of emotional tugs here and there. So that's good advice. I appreciate it. Um, I have really, really appreciated your overall um, attitude and, and your willingness to Come on and let me drill you with all these questions, Kim. Um, and hopefully we'll have you back sometime. This has been great. We'd love it. Yeah, absolutely. If, if you can't tell, I love talking about my business and my job. So anytime. Fantastic. You've been listening to uh, Michael Williams and Kim Crea. We're discussing the lending and mortgage interest rate environment here in January of 2023, a brand new year. Hopefully you'll continue to listen to our podcast this is called Capitalize Your Fridays. I'm Michael Williams with Altius Financial. Please like, share, and continue to listen to our podcast and let us know if you have topics you want to hear about. Thank you. Because of the nature of this topic, we decided to add an additional disclaimer. Kim's in the lending business, which is heavily regulated, just the financial services and investment advisory business. So take a listen to this just so we're covered. So I'm Kim Crea with Draper and Kramer Mortgage, Equal Housing Opportunity, NMLS ID number 194345, found through nmlsconsumeraccess.org, Colorado license number 1000101108, an agent of Draper and Kramer Mortgage Corp, NMLS 2551, an Illinois residential mortgage licensee located at 1431 Opus Place, Suite 200, Downers Grove, Illinois, 60515. Phone number 630 376 2100. 